Welcome to episode 11 of Garner's Greek Mythology. Hecate. She's the original badass superhero, but she's stealthy. She works in the shadows. You may not have heard of her. She's not as famous as Zeus or Apollo. Think of a young woman who slips easily from the world of the living to that of the dead, and then back again. She knows no borders. She's found at crossroads at night, torch in hand, surrounded by hellhounds. Anyone who hears the shrill barking cowers. And then there's Ares, one of the twelve Olympians. He thrives on fear and is driven by an uncontrollable desire for mayhem. Welcome to Garner's Greek Mythology. This is Patrick Garner. I'm a mythologist and author of three best-selling novels. They constitute a trilogy and have one theme, that the ancient Greek gods are here and that they never left. Imagine with me that they were never myths. Before we begin, I want to thank you for listening. Welcome to our second year. The series has become a great success. We've had thousands of downloads and listeners have tuned in from over 60 countries. The adventures continue. As always, this series will focus on one thing, Greek gods, of course. Here, the ancient gods are not considered imaginary. Hardly. Instead, they, like you, are here now. Hecate, she's a divinity who today is considered the goddess of witches. She's celebrated by many of those who call themselves Wiccan. She's Hecate if you're Greek, or Hecate, if you speak English. As we have no wish to insult the goddess, we'll use the Greek pronunciation. Unlike Ares, Hecate was not a child of Zeus, yet she was accepted by the Olympians as if she were. In fact, she was far older than any of them, but none of that mattered as she never aged, and yet she represented all ages. Hecate became known as the Triple Goddess. She personified maiden, mother, and crone, youth, adulthood, and old age. She was also the third goddess in the Demeter-Persephone-Hecate trio. Remember that Hades abducted Persephone and dragged her into the underworld? It was Hecate who found her there. Persephone's mother, Demeter, was frantic at her daughter's disappearance and scoured the world for a year to find her. Finally, she turned to Hecate, and Hecate succeeded. The three became linked forever. Together, they initiated what were called the Mysteries, or the Eleusinian Mysteries. What were these mysteries? Essentially, they were a passport into a better afterlife. And Hecate was perfect for this, as she, unlike any of the other divinities, could slip between worlds as if there was no distinction between them. 
But none of this sounds like what we think of witches, does it? It doesn't because she had no need for what we call magic. Instead, Hecate could as easily pull down the night as she could illuminate the dark crossroads she favored. Her torches could burn far brighter than a full moon. Her eyes could see through the night and into men's souls. At a mere glance from Hakate, the hounds that surrounded her would fall instantly silent. And at a swipe of the hand, the sky would darken and the stars disappear. But let's clarify something. Hakate was not a witch. 2,000 years ago, there were no witches. Witches were invented by the Christian church six or 700 years ago. Church fathers believed that Satan was everywhere and that witches were his agents. The modern concept of witches is very different. Those calling themselves Wiccan reached back for inspiration into the time of the Greek gods long before Christianity. But what can be confusing is that in today's neo-paganism, Hecate is assigned qualities never imagined by the ancient Greeks, and there's far more to tell. Here's a twist that involves Artemis. Many of the ancient writers say that she and Hecate became close friends, or did they? Some speculate that they were the same person. What's remarkable is Hecate was one of many last names for Artemis, as in Artemis Hecate. If we follow this winding road, then Hecate was simply a darker aspect of Artemis. And why not? Many of the gods, when you begin to poke around, are like Russian nesting dolls. They keep appearing one inside another in different forms. So imagining Artemis as Hecate or Hecate as the incarnation of a dark, foreboding Artemis is really quite plausible. Statues of Hecate were often placed at crossroads and boundaries. She would hold a torch in each hand to illuminate both sides of a border. But remember her borders were not limited to the material world. With a mere thought, she could cross the line between the living and the dead. She held the power to swing open or to close the gates of the underworld. She could wander through Hades' dark realm without interference and as we saw when she rescued Persephone, Hakate could control the passage of others from one realm to another. As she strode through the underworld, her frequent companion was a large black dog simply known as She-Dog. So fearsome were the two that as they passed, even the shades of the dead stepped aside. Hakate and dogs, the howling of hellhounds, her companion, She-Dog. Hounds were so closely tied to her that it was said that Hakate herself could even appear as a dog. We've spoken of her as the triple goddess. In that aspect, she also acted as a guardian of alleys, doorways, and anywhere danger might lurk. You remember that the Greeks, for all their brilliance, were extremely superstitious. As triple goddess, she was often shown in threes, each Hecate facing outward, torch in hand back against a central column, seeing everywhere. 
These statues were called Hecateon. Together, the three saw all and guarded against all that was evil. And so Hecate, whether a manifestation of Artemis or not, slipped like a phantom through the light of the full moon or danced through the darkness of the gateway to death. And I speak of death. Doing so is a fitting segue. Whereas Hecate moved between light and darkness, the god Ares embraced darkness and extinguished light. He reveled in death on the battlefield, howling like Hecate's dogs in his delight at the carnage. Hecate's darkness was that of shadows, but Ares' darkness was the blackness which swirls upon a man who receives a death blow in the heat of war. When Ares' shriek of bloodlust carried over a battlefield, the strongest men would tremble in fear. One can imagine him at his birth crawling out of some dismal swamp, the offspring of venomous snakes. But no, instead, he was the black sheep of divine royalty. You see, he was the son of Zeus and Hera, although neither was fond of him. Ares had a sister as well, Eris, E-R-I-S. She accompanied him in battle. She was appropriately named as in Greek, the word Eris means strife. Everyone associated with Ares was trouble. In addition to his black-hearted sibling, Ares was flanked on the battlefield by his children, Phobos and Deimos, and their names meant panic and rout. Rout meaning what happens to soldiers who retreat in uncontrollable fear. And their mother, Aphrodite. The children were the progeny of the years-long affair between Ares and the goddess of love. Aphrodite was considered the most beautiful of the goddesses, and Ares, too, was renowned for being handsome. But good looks aside, how do we explain the affair between Ares and the goddess of love? I mean, it sounds a bit like the marriage of war and peace, or night and day. Yet these inexplicable pairings occur. You've heard the phrase, opposites attract. And in fact, understanding Ares is easiest when he's compared to the other Olympic gods. While his lover Aphrodite personified animation and vitality, Ares epitomized gruesome death. While almost all the Olympians were multifaceted, he was not. His sole obsession was making war. Prometheus gave mankind fire. Athena gifted the first sailing ship in olive trees. Apollo taught men the art of healing. Dionysus gave the Greeks wine and theater. And what did Ares contribute? Weapons. Bows and arrows, spears, war machines that brought down walls protecting towns. You see, he gave destruction. His contributions accelerated slaughter. He was single-minded and unsparing. He was an outlier and almost an outcast. Ares had no interest in planning. 
His strategy was to lunge into the fray, blind to all consequences. He tried to conquer by intimidation. Like many bullies, he was a coward. A telling insight into the real Ares occurred in the Trojan War. All the gods and goddesses were involved, each rooting for either the Greeks or the Trojans. Ares had taken the Trojan side, which infuriated Athena, who had sided with the Greeks. Aphrodite had appeared on the battlefield to protect one of her sons, who fought for the Trojans. She was caught up in the fray, and a soldier slashed her wrist with his spear. Ares was unaware his lover had been wounded. He was also unaware that Athene was secretly protecting the attacker when she rushed to tell him that he must avenge Aphrodite immediately. Reluctantly, Ares entered the killing ground. Ares attacked, but with a single thrust, the Greek warrior sank his spear into Ares' belly. To the shame of the other gods, Ares fell to his knees, crying out in pain. Homer wrote that Ares bellowed like 10,000 men and fled the battlefield in tears. He ran to his father Zeus, whimpering that he'd been wounded. Even Aphrodite had endured her injury without complaint. Zeus admonished him, saying, Do not sit beside me and whine. To me, you are the most hateful of all the gods. And what about Aphrodite's attraction to Ares after this? Well, none of the gods like a coward. But it gets worse. The Spartans believed that Ares could give them an advantage on the battlefield if they offered him human sacrifice. The usual goats and sheep, you see, just would not do. They used prisoners of war instead. One reason this was problematic for non-Spartans was because Greeks were in battle so often that anyone could become a prisoner at almost any time. Men who lost the Spartans were either slaughtered or turned into helots. Helots were a class of serfs in Sparta, almost the equivalent of slaves. And the outrages relating to Ares' worship went on. In Greece, dogs were almost never offered in sacrifice. But once again in Sparta, the city regularly celebrated Ares by sacrificing hounds and unusual nighttime ceremonies. One must wonder what Hakate thought as her beloved dogs were offered up to the heartless god of war. When the Romans conquered Greece, they renamed Ares Mars. In this new incarnation, he was suddenly less impulsive, more level-headed. The Romans tried to make Ares mirror their own to be more tactical and deliberate. No longer was it seemly for the god of war to lurch into battle, and no longer did the god of bloodlust appear on the battlefields. His blood-curdling shriek went silent. 
But don't mistake my meaning. He was still there at every battle. He reveled in the carnage. Obviously, there's a gene in both gods and men that drives them toward endless war. And when the Roman Empire met its end, Ares moved on, much like his lover Aphrodite, who is now the goddess Venus. The world could not exist without love, nor apparently could it continue without war. Aphrodite and Ares were what we might call essential workers, and their work went on. That is, until we see Ares in my book, Cycladic Girls. There he confronts Temessa, one of Artemis's nymphs who suddenly has powers far greater than even the divinities. And the goddess Hecate? Does she still linger on dark nights at crossroads, accompanied by shrill hounds? Of course. In our next episode, we encounter Hermes, Hera, and Hestia. Hermes was a divine messenger, a trickster, and a protector of thieves. Hera was Zeus's seventh wife, and Hestia was a virgin goddess, the guardian of the home and the hearth. Hermes and Hestia appear in my books as well in surprising roles. Be sure to visit patrickgarnerbooks.com or find me on Amazon. My three novels are set in today's world and feature Greek gods who meddle and maneuver as they always have.